Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in 1 John. So we're going to go ahead and uh, I think we got, how much left do we got, Joseph? A few more weeks? Four or five more weeks. So what's going to happen is going to play out like this. So we're going to have our special Easter Sunday, then we'll finish 1 John. Then we're going to go ahead and do our culture of Living Hope Family Church that we always do um, during uh, our, our anniversary time. And then we'll come back and finish up 2 John and 3 John. So that is our plan for the next, I guess, several months of this year. Um, but we're excited about that and looking forward to that. But today, we're going to go ahead and continue on in the uh, uh, book of 1 John. And we're actually dealing with the second half of chapter 3 today. How many know that there are some key differences between children of the devil and children of God? Some pretty key differences. First off, we know that children of God have stepped out of death and into life. And we're gonna, John's going to talk about that today. And then we know that the children of the devil, they're still stuck in death. And the only way to step out of that is to put your faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to see that children of God are, are characterized by their love and that the children of the devil are characterized by hate, by hatred. Does that mean that that uh, people that aren't saved are incapable of any kind of love? No. But it means that their, their, their character, where they're from, uh, it, like we talked about earlier, it's not a practice. Just because somebody does something a couple of times doesn't mean it's their practice. It doesn't mean it's the, the character of who they are. That's why we're challenged in the Bible. It says that, that we should love our enemies because, because loving your friends, loving your family, even the unsaved do that. But Christians, we're marked by something different. We love even our enemies, Amen. So children of, of, of God love, whereas children of hate are characterized, or children of the devil are characterized by their hate. And then finally, children of God abide in the Father, and the Father abides in them. And as a result of this, we're different. We look different than the world. We come from a different family. We have different characteristics. And the truth is, is that our lives should demonstrate this. How we live, it should be obvious that we're different. It's like the old question that was asked if, if today or if tomorrow it was made illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's a good question to ask. Because the reality is, is that our lives should be characterized by love, by a changed heart, by not being who we used to do, be. And not just by saying that we love. I mean, you can say you love somebody all you want. But it doesn't really mean much until it's characterized in your actions. It's easy to say you love somebody but ignore them. It's easy to say you love somebody and not be there for them. It's easy to say you love somebody and watch their needs go unmet. But when you have to step up, when you have to sacrifice, when you have to give up time and energy and resources, that's when you start to demonstrate. That's when, when, when love begins to shine out of you. And the truth is, Christian, when people walk by us, they should get love on them. It should be exuding from us in everything that we do. So as we begin here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So last week we ended in, in, in verse 10, and this is what it said. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John continues on from that thought. The one that doesn't love his brother is not from, 
from God. And he says, so this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's what he's been teaching. That's what all the apostles have been teaching. But it's not just the beginning in the sense of, of, of when the apostles began to preach the gospel, but this message has been preached literally from the beginning. And when I say beginning, I mean very beginning. Because love is God's character. It's who he is. God's very nature is love. Next week in chapter 4, we're going to see in verse 7, uh, John's going to teach that love is from God. And then in verse 8, we're going to find out that God actually is love. That is his character. That's who he is. And if you look at what John is, is constantly teaching in his epistles and in the gospel, is that one, it's how we should love one another and how, how that God is love. That God's love for us and our love for one another is emphasized by John more than any other apostle. And he does it over and over and over again. You want to know what it means when something's repeated in the Bible? Maybe you should pay attention. It's something that God wants you to get a hold of and understand. But John's not the only one that teaches about God's love and how we should love one another. Um, Paul also speaks of God's love for us. You can just look at Ephesians 2, chapter 4, or Romans chapter 5, verse 8, to see some examples of that. And that's just a few of the examples in the New Testament that reiterates God's love for us and our love that we should have for one another. The Old Testament is rich with examples of God's love as well. And I'm not reading these verses out and I'm not going through them because if I did, we'd be here all day. And then we also know that we are made in God's image. Therefore, we love. It's a characteristic of God. We are made to be like Him. If He loves, we love. That's who we should be. It's also the message that all the disciples preached. Aside from John, who, as I said, really labors this point over and over and over in his epistles, Paul labored on how we're supposed to love one another as well. He tells us in Galatians 5.22 that love is actually a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that you should be producing in your life as a result of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. And the entire 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, you know what they call that? The love chapter. The entire chapter is dedicated to the importance of love and it reiterates the fact that if you don't have love, you're essentially ineffective. If you don't have love, anything else you do, even in the name of God, is worthless. And the reason the disciples taught this is because this is what Jesus taught. In John 15, 10 through 17, it says, if you keep my commandments, this is Jesus speaking, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Jesus says, you keep my commandments and you're going to continue, you're going to abide in my love. He says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide or continue in His love. Jesus sets the example for us. And verse 11 says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So Jesus has given us His commandments so that His joy would be in us and that our joy would be made full. And by keeping His commandments, we know that we are abiding or continuing in His love. And then He goes on, He says, This is my commandment. Don't you love it? When the Bible makes it clear, because we're like, if we keep his commandments, which commandments are those? I'm not sure. Guess what? This is my commandment. That you what? Love one another as I have loved you. We're commanded by Jesus to love one another. It's the message that was heard from the beginning. Jesus taught it, and the disciples 
taught it. The apostles taught it. And then he goes on to explain what this love looks like. He says, greater love has no one than this, that if someone laid down his life for his friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So he says, no greater love is known than to give your life for your friends. You see, the love that we're commanded to have, this God-like love, is not platitude. It's not just saying. It's defined by action. Jesus loved us so much that he gave up his life for us, and we're commanded to love just like that. We're commanded to love so greatly and so deeply that we would be willing to give our life for any person in this room. That's the kind of love that we're commanded. And he says, look, you're my friends if you do what I command you. What did he command us? To love one another as I have loved you. If you're Jesus' friend, then that's the result of that relationship, that change inside of you. And he goes on, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. And how are you his friend? By keeping his commandment. What was his commandment? That you love one another. He says, for all that I have heard from the, my Father, I have made known to you, and you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you. Why? So that you will love one another. It's interesting because it's so simple. I command you to love one another. Why? so that you will love one another. This is important to Jesus. This is the message that was heard from the beginning. As Christians, love should be our most defining characteristic. That's why we're so concerned with the church as being available to help other people, to be there for one another. It's why when, when people are going through stuff and they don't give us a call to let us know what's going on, it's not because I want to be in their life, it's because I want to show my love to them. I want to be there for them. It's like, come on, you have family here. Reach out if you need help. Let us know we're family. We take care of one another. And every single person in this room should be able to call any other person in this room and ask for help, ask for friendship, ask for any of those things. And the other, other side of the line should be willing to give it. Because we love. We should be known by our love. Matter of fact, that's what the Bible says, is that that's how they'll know us is by our love. It's one of our defining characteristics. And so John continues on in, in verses 12 through 13. We should not be like Cain, who was of the devil one, of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So to really demonstrate uh, how we should love one another, John gives us kind of the, the antithesis, antithesis, I think is how you say it, of what that would look like. He says, look, don't be like someone who doesn't love. And he gives an example of Cain. So you remember that one of the indications of whether or not we're one of God's children or if we're children of the devil, is how we love. And how we love one another. Just so you know, if anybody was confused or misunderstand, murder is not how you show somebody you love them. Probably the worst way to do it 
if you're thinking about how you can show someone you love them. So Cain, Cain is, uh, John actually says that, look, Cain was of the evil one. He was a child of the devil. And he demonstrated the actions of being one of the devil's children. Because if you're one of God's children, you show love. But if you're one of the devil's children, you show hate. And, and, and you will see in a second, that's the, the, the extension of hate is murder. That's where it leads to. And he says that, that, that Cain murders his own brother. Why? Not because his brother did anything bad, but because Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain saw his brother do good, and it led to jealousy in his own life. And this jealousy festered, and it turned into hatred, and ultimately that hatred then went ahead and stepped into murder, and he killed his brother. And as Christians, you'll, you'll see this progression happen. And while I believe, I truly believe, that nobody in this room is going to murder anybody. <laughs> It's really easy to start down that slope. It's really easy because that's where did it start? With jealousy. Have you ever gotten upset when somebody at your work got a raise and you didn't? Have you ever got upset that somebody else got a better job and you didn't? Or they got a new car and you weren't able to? Or they got a new home and you weren't able to get a new home? Or what about uh, if you're trying to have a baby and you can't seem to get pregnant, but somebody else in the church gets pregnant? It's really easy to be jealous of those things. It's really easy to start asking God, why is it that they get this and I don't get that? And we begin showing characteristics of jealousy. And if that's left unchecked, it's really easy to start hating people that are receiving blessing that for some reason you believe that you deserve. So if we're not careful, we can let these things get a hold of us and begin to build bitterness in our heart. And we begin to hate one another so easy because we don't understand why they're getting blessed and we're not. Because we forgot that as Christians, we shouldn't be jealous of them. We should be rejoicing with them. We should be rejoicing that they got a raise. We should be rejoicing that they got the new job. We should be rejoicing that they got the new car or the new home or that they got pregnant. We should be rejoicing with them and not be jealous of them. And then finally, as we return to this example, we find one more unfortunate reality. It says, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. If we live righteously, it's only natural for a world who does not to be upset with us, to be at odds with us. Because just like I mentioned last week, we are from two different families, two different upbringings. We have two different histories and characteristics. And we live differently. How we live is fundamentally different than how the world lives, or it should be. And if you're living like you should be living, you'll notice that the rest of the world around us isn't quite living the same way. They're doing things a little bit different. So it should never come as a shock to us that the world, who is defined by their evil deeds because they are from their father, the devil, would be at odds with us who perform deeds that are in keeping with righteousness because our father is God. 
Amen? And then John continues. In verses 14 through 15, we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The key difference from a spiritual standpoint between children of the devil and children of the God is that, that the children of God have stepped out of death and into life. Whereas the children of the devil are still stuck in death. They're still abiding in death. They're still broken. They still have uh, the... The, the curse is still upon them. Whereas those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we've stepped out of death and into life. And, and he goes on to say that we can know this because we love the brothers. That's an interesting thing. We can know this. If, if you're careful and you read this too fast, you can say we know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. You can, you can get things wrong and say, oh, I'm earning my way into life by loving the brothers. But that's not what he's saying. This is not to say that we are saved because we love. We know this is not the case. Because if you read the scripture, you come to an understanding that salvation is a result of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not a result of your actions or your deeds. So to say that our love is what gives us, gets us out of death and into life would be to put the cart before the horse. The reality is, is that because we are saved... The natural result of that is that we love the brothers. And because we see the evidence, we see the natural result of that, we see that we are changed, that is an indication of the life-changing work that has been accomplished inside of us. So if you're able to love like God loves, then you're saved. And when you see that play out in your life, that is the evidence. That is how you can be certain. A changed life and how you treat people is how you can be certain. Once again, our loving isn't what saves us, but because we are saved, we love. And it's evidence of a changed life. And he says, whoever does not love still abides in death. Whoever does not love continues in death. Now, is it they're not loving that caused them to not be saved? No. It's not they're not loving. Just like your loving can't get you to be saved, your not loving is not what makes you unsaved. The people that aren't saved is because they haven't put their trust in Jesus Christ. But if you're not able to love, then we still abide in death. It's evidence that there wasn't actually a change inside of us. Because if you're really born again, you're going to see evidence in your life. You know, when you, when you go to the altar and you, and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just an emotional moment that you're looking for, but it's a changed life, a changed heart that you're looking for. If you only had an emotional experience and you walk away the same as you walked up, then you didn't get saved. But something changes. And that's what John says. Look, if there is no evidence, whoever doesn't love abides in death. If there's no evidence, then you still abide in death. Because here's the thing. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. I didn't say it. John said it. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now you might say, I've never murdered anybody. 
But the thing is, is that not only does John indicate that if you hate your brother, it's a murder. Jesus indicates the same thing. Hating is equivalent to murder, at least in the eyes of God. John says it, Jesus says it. This is Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those who of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You want to know why this is? It's because while hatred doesn't actually end of life, end a life, the inward intent is the same. That's for the Christian, hatred is the same as murder because it's the moral equivalent. Now, does this mean that you're in a mess because you got mad at somebody? No. Repent. Move on. If you have something against your brother, go to him and talk to him about it. You know, the truth is, is that we're all going to get angry at each other from time to time. We're going to irritate each other. We're going to offend one another. We can continue doing that, which is what abiding in hate is, or we can deal with it. We can talk. See, the issue is, is, is not that we have these moments. The truth is, is that we all do. We're not, we haven't achieved perfection yet. So we're all prone to slip into sin from time to time. The key is that you don't live there. You don't stay there. You go to people and you ask for forgiveness. Or you go to people and say, look, what you did hurt me. And if somebody comes to you and says that, then you ask for their forgiveness. But what if I feel like I didn't do anything to offend them? It doesn't matter what you feel like. They got offended. You did something that bothered them. Just apologize. And don't do that. Anybody ever heard the, the fake apology? I'm sorry if I hurt you. It wasn't about if. I just told you, you hurt me. So say I'm sorry that I hurt you. Even if you don't think that you did anything wrong. Just ask for forgiveness. And if we would, because that's the thing, when you live like that, you're showing that you care about somebody else more than you care about yourself. And you are showing real love. So now another question you might ask, because this seems pretty strong. Because you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. What about somebody that's actually committed murder? Does that mean it's impossible for them to be saved? Absolutely not. Paul himself was party to the stoning of Stephen. And then if you read in Acts 26.10, you'll find out that Paul says that, look, I cast my vote for tons of Christians to be put to death. Paul was a murderer. But he had a moment on the road to Damascus where God changed his life. So the better question to ask is not, can a murderer have eternal life? The better question to ask is, can a murderer become a Christian and remain a murderer? And the answer to that is no. Because the two are mutually exclusive. If you are a murderer and you become a Christian and you continue to murder, then you're not really a Christian. And if you're a murderer and you become a Christian, it'll be impossible for you to murder because you've been changed. Salvation is the result of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And saving faith results in a changed heart 
in a changed person. Amen? And then in 1 John 3.16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The reality is, is that Jesus set the example for every single one of us. He showed what real love really looks like. He showed us how to really love. And he did it by giving everything, even his own life, for each and every one of us in this room. And truthfully, each and every person on this planet and that has ever lived, ever lived, and is going to live, Jesus gave his life for them because he loved them that much. And the thing is, if we're to love so much that we, were to, we should be willing to give our life for somebody, what does it say when we somebody, see somebody in need and aren't even willing to help them with physical stuff, with a little bit of money, with a little bit of your time, Sometimes just someone to talk to. What is, I mean, we're supposed to love so much that we'd be willing to give our life, but sometimes we're not even willing to give a Saturday for somebody. You're going to notice that when John is preaching, he has a lot to say about how we live our lives. John was acutely aware of what happens to a person when they get saved. They're changed. They're not who they used to be. Their lives should look different. And they should now look like the God that they serve. The one that they are a child of. Have you guys ever noticed how children look like their parents? Not only in, in appearance, but also in how they behave. Some of you young people are all offended right now. I don't, I'm not like my parents. I'm nothing like my parents where you're going to go through two stages, either when you're young and you realize, I don't want to be anything like my parents. And then at one point, you're going to get to a point and say, it doesn't matter how hard I tried, I ended up being my mother. Or I ended up being my father. And everyone who has been to that stage are all laughing and agreeing, yep, that's going to happen. The truth is, is that we grow up looking like our family. And if you're a child of God, then the DNA of that should be shining through in your life. We should be able to see that. This is why he asks, how does God's love abide in him? For someone who sees somebody, they have the world's good, they have the means to help somebody, and they see them in need and they don't help them. He says, how is it that God's love abides in them? I mean, they're supposed to have enough love to give them their life, but they can't even give them their goods. How does God's love abide in him. The DNA of the family of God should be shining through in our life. We should see that evidence. So we're challenged by John. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Because it's so easy to say you love somebody. Many of you have already been in relationships where you've had somebody tell you that they love them and then there's, they've never showed it, not even once. It's easy to say you love somebody, but you prove it by your deeds. You prove it by how you live your life. Because to truly love is to actually show it. Amen?
And then he goes on in verse 19 through 20, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So the first thing we have to ask is by this. What is he talking about by this? Well, he's referring to loving and, and not in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. That's the by this, is, is, is loving in deed and truth. So he says, by this, by loving in deed and truth, we, we know that we are of the truth and we can reassure our heart before him. So once again, you have to really understand what John is doing. He's really wanting us to understand he really wants us to get that our actions demonstrate what has happened inside of us. The truth is, is that you do what you are. If you're saved, if you're born again, you're going to do according to that. But if you're a child of the devil, you're going to do according to that. So he really wants us to understand that how you live, how you behave is a direct result of who you are. And if you're a child of God, your actions are going to show it. And because we see this change in our life, that means that we can assure our hearts before God. And some of you are going, what does that even mean? Why do we have to assure our hearts before God? The reality is, is that every single one of us has experienced it, though. Have you ever felt like you don't measure up? Your heart, what, Paul's ta or what John's talking about here is not your physical heart and your chest. What he's talking about is your, your seed of emotions, your feels, basically. He's talking about how you feel, and what he's saying is that the, the, the reality is, is that Jesus set a pretty high standard for us. He is what we're supposed to measure up to, and the truth is, is that we don't measure up to it all the time. In addition, for most of us, when we get saved, it takes a while for our body to catch up with what has happened in our spirit. So sometimes our hearts, our feelings, our emotions begin to question, are you really even saved? Anybody ever felt that? Messed up and then they, they start questioning everything? Or when, when you say, no, I am saved, and you get that, that, that feeling in the pity, well, what about when you did this? What about when you did that? You know, usually it's not the devil accusing you. It's you accusing you. Because we've all been there. You know, you know what you've done. It's probably why it's so hard for us. To, I, I'll give you an example in my own life. When I first um, got filled with the Spirit and began speaking in tongues and praying in tongues, the hardest person to do it in front of was my wife. Because everybody else kind of knew me, but they didn't know everything. But she knew almost everything about me. And I always wondered, would she go, I know who you are. That's not who you are. This is That's what I felt inside of me. And you know who knows me better than my wife? Me. I know things that I've done that nobody knows that I've done. And it's really easy for you to accuse you. And that's why we have to assure our hearts before God. Because the questions we, I mean, anybody ever ask, how can God actually love me? That's your heart accusing you. But when we see the actions and the deeds that are the result of being born again, when we actually start to see our life change, we can use that as evidence. That no, something is changing inside of me. I'm not who I used to be. 
Because if you knew who I used to be, you'd know I'd never done these, the, the stuff that I'm doing now. The very fact that I am not who I used to be is demonstrated by how I'm now living proves all of these things. It proves that when our heart accuses us, we can say, yes, I am saved. Because salvation is by faith and not by works. We can say, yes, I may have done those things, but I am not who I used to be. And we can say, yes, God loves me. You want to know how I know? He proved it in His Son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for me. We can, we can reassure our hearts and we can have proof as evidenced by how we live our lives because something has changed inside of us and reassure our heart. Because here's the deal. It says that, look, God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your emotions. God is greater than your feelings. And He knows everything. And it's, here's the deal. And it's really important that you get this. God trumps whatever your heart says. If God says you're loved, you are. If God says you're righteous, you are. If God says you're forgiven, you are. If God says you're his child, then you are. If God says that you are new, then you are. And if God says that you're made in his image and you are loving, then you are. God is greater than your heart. So reassure your heart before God. And he goes on in verses 21 through 22 because he says, Beloved, because if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. You see, eventually, with enough reassuring, your heart's going to get in line. Your feelings, your emotions are going to get in line with the reality of what God has said and done in your life. And this will give you confidence before God. Why does it give you confidence? Because if you stand before God, you're bringing your requests to God and you're not always attacking yourself, you're going to be more confident to stand before God. You're not going to feel like you don't measure up or you're not worth it. And to be clear, this is not to say that if your heart doesn't condemn you, that's the reason why you can have confidence before God. We don't have confidence because our heart doesn't condemn us. We have confidence because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. The truth doesn't change whether or not your conscience, your heart, your feelings agree or not. That is the reality. That's where our confidence is born from. But this means that we can come to God with our requests and not have our emotions attack us every single time, telling us we're not worthy, we're not worth it. Who are you to come before God? And we can use this evidence of a changed life to say, no, I am, because look, God's doing a work in me. I'm not who I used to be. And then we know we can go to him with confidence because, and receive what we ask of him because we can ask with boldness and with confidence. And we know that we're going to receive it because we're not going to be telling ourselves that we don't deserve it. And just to clarify some things, because people get confused about this as well, does that mean you can ask God for absolutely everything and he'll give it to you? No. If you're asking God for your neighbor's wife, the answer is no. For a couple reasons. One, that's not in line with the will of God. And two, if you're asking those kind of things, I would question, do you really abide in Him? Because that's the thing. That when you abide in Him, you're in step with Him. You're walking in step with the Holy Spirit. His thoughts are your thoughts. The things that you ask for are going to be things that He wants for you. Your thoughts will be in line with His will. 
And that's what this is about. Getting your emotions in line with the reality of what Christ has done in your life and having the confidence to go to God with boldness, knowing that He hears you. Not because of what you've done, but because of what He's done. And then He's going to hear you and answer your requests. He says, Whatever we receive, we ask, we receive for him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The question you might ask again is, well, what are these commandments he's speaking about? And I love it when the Bible's clear. It lets us know what's going on. 3.23, and this is the commandment. Just in case you were confused, he tells us what it is. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded us i love when the scripture is clear because sometimes it's not always right now on wednesday nights we're going through the book of isaiah i can tell you it's not always clear what the scripture is trying to say but here it's clear he spells it out he says if we keep his commandments and this is his commandment and it's not that these are every commandment that jesus ever gave that God ever gave. But they're summed up in these commandments. One is that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. We're commanded to put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. And we're commanded to love one another. It's just like when the, they asked Jesus, you know, what are the two greatest commandments? And He said, love God and love your neighbor. Did you know that all the commandments are summed up in that? That's what Jesus said. I'm not making this up. And the reason is because if you love your neighbor, you're not going to lie to them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to murder them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to cover what is theirs because you're going to rejoice with them for what they have. And if you love God, you're not going to take idols or put other gods before him. That's why they're all, they're all wrapped up in that. So for all the commandments, look, we've got to place our faith in Jesus and we have to love one another. These are the commandments that he's given to us. And these are fundamentally linked. You can't have faith in Jesus without loving. And you can't love without having faith in Jesus. I'm not talking about world kind of love. You can still love a burrito if you're not saved. But it's not the same thing. They go hand in hand. By putting your trust in Jesus, you are finally able to love. And you aren't ever able to love, not a God type of love, unless you put your faith in Jesus. They are intricately linked. There's a fundamental and essential union before, between faith and love. And we're going to end here in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. As John closes this section, he's going to come full circle back into the reality of keeping God's commandments results in abiding or continuing in fellowship with God. And then he reiterates another amazing truth is that not only do we abide in God, but he abides in us. We know this because he's placed his spirit inside of us. He lives inside of us. 
And being born again is not just another system of religion. It's, not, it's a relationship. It's a reciprocal relationship between God and us. We abide in Him and He abides in us. And we have fellowship with one another. How amazing is that, church? Every other religion is about how you can get to God. But Christianity is the only one how God came to you. He made a way. And we have a relationship, not just a system of religion, system of rules. That's an amazing thing. Amen? So church, as we close today, I want to challenge you. Make sure that the DNA of your Father, God, is showing in your life. Church, let's be a people who love. Not just a people who say it, but a people who do it. Let's show it in the way that we live our life. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.